Welcome to In the Thick of It, Prof in Lossie's weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of P&L. A um, couple of things on the agenda before we get to uh, this week's guest, who's really interesting conversation around execution quality, which is a subject close to my heart, as most regular listeners will know. Um, just a couple of quick look at um, two things that grabbed my eye this week, and that was the week that was. Um, the first one was um, from LMAX Group with the announcement of their weekend FX. Um, now, the immediate reaction, and I have to say I'm recording this probably 24 hours after we published our story on the on the uh, release. Um, the immediate reaction is, why would we want to do that? And I kind of get that. That was my immediate reaction as well. Um, needs to be stressed that this is CFD-related, non-fungible CFD products, trade-in. So I don't think the idea is this for this to actually extend the current FX market as we know it at the institutional level into 24-7. However, that was definitely the, the um, maybe the prediction or the desire expressed by um, LMAX Group CEO David Mercer in the release. Now, I think, you know, the why do we need this is a natural knee-jerk reaction. There will always be, um, you know, that sort of immediate reaction to something dramatically changing the landscape. I do tend to agree. I think that I don't, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I love good ideas. I'm not sure this is going to work. Um, there are going to be some obstacles to it. I covered some of this in my column on Thursday, for those of you who can read that. But, you know, <clears throat> off the top of my head, I look at it and go, well, you know, firms, platforms, um, LPs, customers, they do need to do tech upgrades on their systems and systems work. And the weekend provides a really good time to do that. Um, and they can occasionally go wrong and they, they need the whole of that weekend, that 48 hours to really sort of get the thing um, nailed down. The other one I would go is risk management. Um, this has been tried before at the retail level and the platform found out that a lot of their customers were a lot smarter than they thought. And something happened over the weekend and they got absolutely filled in. Um, it happens. I guess you'd have to look at it and go, is there going to be enough volume for you to make enough money over the weekend to make up for the, you know, one weekend in 10, maybe, that you get filled in? The only thing I would say is that in this current environment with the pandemic going and US-China tensions um, increasing again, it could be a lot more frequent than one in 10. Third point from this one, and by far the biggest for me, is staffing. Um, you know, I think everyone's enjoying the working from home uh, to a degree, but I think we all agree we're working longer hours, and that even includes taking out of a commute. Um, you know, there is no off time in a working from home environment. And the thought of going 24-7 is probably akin to what a lot of people are experiencing at the moment in working from home. And let alone any human rights issues around this, about you know, having people work in those hours, the only solution would be to have two start sets of staff. And that's, um, that's, a, that's an interesting push for an industry that is probably on its knees dealing with the pandemic at the moment. So interesting idea. I'll be fascinated to see how it pans out. But at the moment, I see this as a good idea for that retail crypto space rather than I do for the institutional space. Had been wrong before, as everyone knows, will be wrong again. Never mind. Um, the other thing that caught my eye, um, this is kind of leading to um, the execution piece I'm going to talk to my guest about in a minute. Um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Bank of New York Mellon and 
Deutsche Bank have both announced their um, intention to locate an EFX pricing engine in Singapore. This is part of the MAS's push to build Singapore as an FX centre in Asia, um, starting in 2017. I think we're probably getting into double figures in terms of the you know top level players, including platforms, non banks, and banks that have announced plans. There could be more, of course, that are doing it um, on the quiet. Um, the interesting thing for me is that this may raise the pressure on the primary venues because, you know, at the time it was done, EBS and Refinitiv were pretty clear saying, actually, we're quite happy with what we have. Refinitiv has its one matching center. EBS has three. Um, but then I looked at the data from these firms from May and they were pretty poor, whichever way you look at it. And you wonder, is this something that the primary venues need to now think about embracing? Because, you know, are they actually starting to miss out by not being um, located in Singapore? Or maybe more realistically down the road, will they miss out even more by not being located in Singapore as well? Um, I mean, to give you an idea on how it went, EBS and Refinitiv recorded the lowest ADV for a month since both started reporting data. Now, for EBS, that was in... Um, I think it was January 2007, it was. And for Refinitiv, Reuters as was, it was in April 2009. So these are more than a decade lows. Um, I mean, news wasn't much better at CME, which has had two pretty grim months as well. And the lowest CME has been reporting probably since, in CME's case, probably going back to the early days of that EFX revolution where CME went from being a reasonable player to a significant player again around probably um 2009 so i did a quick calculation in may 2011 which is basically the 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 may before thompson reuters bought fx all ebs cme thompson reuters and fx all were responsible for 557 yards a day in May 2011. Now we'd need to take that with a pinch of salt because FX All's numbers were all FX products, not spot. Let's assume it's just a third and make that 30 million. It's still 527 yards a day. Roll that forward to May 2020, and basically we're looking at 187 yards. So it's you know upwards of 300 billion has disappeared from the primary venues in that time. Now you know, we could argue it's gone to other platforms. I don't think it has. You know, Spotstream has started. They're doing about 36 yards. Fast matches store. Euronext now has started since then. It's doing about 20 yards. 360T was probably doing 10 yards. Then it's now doing 20 yards. Integral was probably doing 15, might be doing 30. There's nothing that actually highlights where this flow went, apart from to off-public venues. So it's probably a subject we'll return to for a later podcast. but. Um, Without doubt, we have to be starting to ask questions around our reliance on the primary venues. I've raised this issue before, and I'm, I think it's we're getting closer to the time of raising it again. Because if nothing else, you know, to have these venues as the primary source of price discovery, um, when the numbers are getting this low, and remember the EBS numbers and the Refinitiv numbers, they're not just matching an EBS market. That includes EBS Direct and the other EBS platforms, and that includes FX All. So we're probably getting close to where we need to have another debate around that one. Um, on a relatively, 
similar note. I'll be back in just a minute with my guest because we're talking um, a new measure of execution quality and market impact, which obviously relies heavily upon data. So we'll be back with my guest in just a second. Did you know that if you sign up before July 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. So I'm joined by Zev Porterfield, Head of Research at New Change FX. Um, Zev has authored a couple of papers that have been published recently that got my eye. Um, one of them was on um, analyzing flows at the fix or trading at the fix using a new um, theory, unit cost of volatility, which is actually the subject of the second paper. So, um, Zev, welcome to the podcast. Can you take us through then how you came up with the, the idea behind the unit cost of volatility? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on. So, um, the idea of unit cost of volatility, um, what I was trying to do was to um, come up with a mechanism by which I could uh, give, ascribe a dollar value to uh, participation in the market. So, when we think about transaction costs, we think about um, uh, the price it costs us relative to some kind of benchmark. So I, I entered here, um, I got filled um, at a price, and I measured the price that I was filled at relative to the benchmark price. But, um, and that's, that's, that's all well and good. Um, and that tells us our, our market impact, our, our effective spread, um, if we have the information. Um, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell us um, whether that price, whether that fill was, was, was any good or not. Uh, relative to what um, and so there's uh, been a lot of um, a lot of people have talked about uh, well I want to know whether my cost is good relative to to other people or and to various other kind of peer benchmarks and I've never been satisfied with that and uh, the reason I've never been satisfied with that is that um, if you if I'm comparing my costs to someone else all I'm doing is I'm comparing my costs my idiosyncratic cost to someone else's idiosyncratic cost right so sorry what do you mean by idiosyncratic costs then okay so right so if you think about what um what is uh, uh what makes a foreign exchange cost there's two parts to it so the first part is the uh the clearing cost so at what price what's the going rate in the market at which a dealer is able to clear the trade. And then the price that they give to me is a, a markup over that clearing cost. Okay. So that clearing cost, that's, that's, that's easily defined. That's, that's, that's the going market mid-rate. Yep. And the idiosyncratic part is the price that's made to me. Right. Now, the price that's made to me, that's made up of all sorts of things because that's got my credit in it. That's got um, uh, whether um, uh, the dealer suspects whether I'm um, long or short. Um, it's, it's got my history built into it. Um, 
there's a whole bunch of things that go into making that price different from the clearing price. And this is OTC, this is a bespoke market. So it's the prices that I get are bespoke. Right. So, so um, it's like, you know, it's like going into, into, into a store and looking at two suits and the different sizes. One has been made for me and one's been made for someone else. Um, comparing those two suits, if I, if I try on the other suit, that's going to be no good for me. Yeah. So just looking at idiosyncratic costs and comparing those isn't enough. No. What I need to know is I need to know um, whether, you know, what, what, what conditions are like. And so that's how, so that's how I came up with this idea of um, uh, what, what is the thing which, is, uh, which everybody pays, which everybody is, um, um, has to address, and that's volatility itself. Yeah. So that's, I don't control volatility, that's market conditions. And everybody, when they're participating at the same time as me, experiences those market conditions. Okay, so what's the theory then that makes up? Okay, so, um, so the idea comes from um, standard uh, market impact theory. So um, since the mid-90s, I think the, the first um, commercial market impact model uh, was the Barra market impact model in equities, which was very successful. Um, so the, um, and that was uh, created in about, about mid, about 1994, something like that. Okay. Um, uh, Grinold and Kahn um, wrote up about it um, in, uh, in 1997 and then again in 2000. Um, and that, that paper, their work on that, um, has kind of defined market impact models ever since. So it, we, we talk about the square root law of market impact, which comes from the grinhold kahn model. Um, and basically what, what that model says is it says that there's a, um, a steady relationship, a square root law relationship between um, volatility and, um, and, and, and volume. Yeah. So um, basically, the, the intuition behind their model is, says that um, if I'm going to hold a position, the risk of holding that position is equal to the time it will take me to clear that trade. So if I've got a, uh, an order which is equal to a day's worth of volume, it's going to take me about a day or should take me about a day to trade it. Yeah. If it takes me about a day to trade it, then the risk that I've got of holding that position is equal to one day's volatility. Yep. So um, unit cost of volatility, all it does is it ascribes a dollar value to volatility to allow me to say, okay, well, I've got this to do. Um, this is going to take me X amount of time. What is, the, what is that uh, volatility over that time window mean in terms of dollars and that's my dollar inventory risk okay so once i once so once i once i'm able to ascribe a dollar value to volatility then it's a very simple thing to look at a trade and say ah well this trade is this size this will this corresponds to x amount of time to clear through the market and 
that's the dollar that's the inventory risk of that trade so everything else any other cost is a um, can be understood as a ratio of that inventory cost of that trade right okay so then how then of new change effects is it going to be deployed this theory going to be deployed in practice so yeah so the so the um unit cost of volatility can then be used to measure um all trades so what i want to know so then that allows me say for instance i've got a dollar check to do and i've got a euro dollar they're two totally different things um they can you know trading conditions will be different liquidity yep. conditions will be different the only common thing is that that dollar cost of volatility will be calculated in the same way and the dollar cost of um of inventory risk of holding dollar check position versus a euro dollar position can be compared on a like for like basis we would expect that the dollar cost of volatility in euro dollar um for the volatility conditions that, that you know the the actual dollar cost of holding euro dollar should be lower than the dollar cost of holding dollar check yeah and that's what this does so what we're doing is we're kind of normalizing um our costs by ascribing how much of our cost comes from the volatility itself so that then obviously would give traders information how would how would you expect them to use that if i'm if i'm sitting on the execution desk at a, at a fund how would you expect me to use the information so th so that's in a sense um that um that dollar cost the inventory cost or dollar cost of, of volatility that's the base that's yeah. the cost relative to the clearing rate the price that i get is my idiosyncratic price which means that i can then compare my cost how much it's actually cost me versus my own idiosyncratic cost versus this normalized clearing cost so it's effectively a way for me to also compare my lps you can compare your liquidity providers you can compare your own performance when you're trading different currencies of different volatility regimes different moments in time um, so what we're doing is we're kind of like taking out market conditions so absent mar market conditions was the um uh, was the result that i got consistent was it any good yeah you know so um because everything is expressed so unit ucv unit cost of volatility is simply a ratio of our cost and that and it's a ratio of that dollar cost of volatility okay so effectively then what this does it provides me with i mean if i'm looking at you know looking at my execution quality it can give me a base level for you know i guess like what you could call the beta um yeah totally yeah so, my execution I mean, cost, yeah but the the reverse alpha <laughs> my idiosyncratic cost yeah. and i can start i can start looking at those so i guess it's a gauge of my efficiency yeah. as a firm isn't it yes yeah and, and and the and the efficiency of the other side in terms of the person who's giving you a price um who you know so if, if i sit if I, if I look at it as a client and i look at that um what it tells me is it tells me um in terms of my liquidity providers or the currency pairs that i'm looking at it tells me um the um the extra the 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 the, the premium or the discount that i'm being given given um, for my flow because it might because you know so you know spreads have been really compressed yeah uh, so but um does that mean that um 
the actual that it's cut that because the spread is down is low, it's not costing me anything. Hmm. So maybe this maybe the spreads are low because volatility is low. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe the spread is low because my dealer is able to monetize that flow. And so that yeah. post-trade market movement will go in the dealer's favor and they're able to clear their trade at a better rate. UCV tells me what that base cost of their participating and trading with me is. Okay, so you use UCV as the basis for your for a case study. I mean, as with all these things, your know, theories sound wonderful, but it's great to get a case study around what happens. Yeah. Um, it's at yeah. this point that regular listeners may start, may inwardly groan to themselves because your case study did involve the fix. But do you want to take us through your findings from the from the paper from a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, for sure. So, um, one of so one of the things I was thinking about was saying so this idea is to, to normalize costs for volatility. So you would expect if volatility is high, the dollar, the dollar cost of volatility would be high. Yeah. So if I've got a transaction cost holding transaction costs constant high volatility would mean that i should have a lower ucb a lower unit cost of volatility because i'm i've got that fixed transaction cost and yep. i'm dividing it by a bigger number so i thought okay well that's that's fine there's been a lot of people who've been you know critical of the fix let's see if i can actually see whether there's an argument which might justify and show that actually the fix is a good idea um, so so I, I, I look back at over one quarter um, and I, um, I, I generated the uh, dollar cost of volatility for the fix. Uh, so that's five, so it's a five minute window. So uh, what's the cost what's in, in, in dollars over that five minutes? I then look at the transaction costs and I measure the transaction costs just in sort of um, using st standard market impact theory again, looking at um, a component of transaction costs which is knowable, and that's the movement in price. So there's two parts to our effective spread. There's our permanent cost, which is the change in mid rate, and then there's the um, uh, the spread away from mid at execution, which is our idiosyncratic cost again. So it's you know spread to mid is our temporary cost, and that's idiosyncratic, and that's linked to a particular trade. And then you've got this um, market movement itself, the information flowing, flowing through the market, which is causing prices to move. Um, looking back at the fix, I know that orders have to be left at least 15 minutes before the fix, yeah. so that the, um, the suppliers of the fix can pre-hedge those trades. So and, and, and obviously net off any flows. That's right. Yeah. But so, so, and so they're, 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 they're pre-hedging any ex exposure that they have. Um, and that should start um, in that, that should start within that 15 minute window before the fix. Yep. So um, the, the base cost, the information cost of participating in the fix is that movement in price. So what I did want was I wanted to compare that to another period in time. So I took uh, midday, um, again, five minutes, um, and then also used um, the same window. So let's say it's the, so had, had I chosen to do a fix another time. Um, so the choice of 
um, the fix where uh, about 10% of daily liquidity is being squashed through this very, very small window. Yeah. What is that effect? And the effect um, that this shows, well, I was amazed that, um, so the argument goes that, um, okay, well, if this is foreign exchange, prices go up, prices go down. Sometimes the fix is in your favor, sometimes it isn't. Um, and it all comes out in the wash. That's the argument. And yeah. I thought, well, if that's true, then when I look at this at UCV, then this UCB will show that as well. Um, so, I, so I ran it. And so, yes, effectively, there were moments when uh, the unit cost of trading at the fix was better than the unit cost of trading um, at, 12, at uh, midday. Yep. But then I looked at the quantum of difference. So for every dollar, it was better to trade at the fix. and most of the time it wasn't um but you know so so the, i only looked at one quarter and in that quarter um they so 70 percent of the time in cable about 65 percent of the time in uh euro dollar and about uh 55 percent of the time in euro sterling um it was better to trade at another time of day so on those you know that 30 percent of the time in cable or um, thirty-five percent of the time in euro dollar, or forty-five percent of the time in euro sterling. When you did get a gain, say you end, you gained one dollar. Yep. The cost, the excess cost, when the fix went against you, when the UCB was worse, was fifteen times. Wow. So, um, so, so basically, if you, if if it is fifty-fifty, you know, if sometimes yeah. the fix goes in your favour, sometimes it doesn't. If it's fifty-fifty, um, with those odds of fifteen to one, so when you win, you win one dollar, and when you lose fifteen, you will quickly. That's that, those are those are ruined probabilities, aren't they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's not a good risk reward, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. But so, the thing, of course, is that most people. Carry they're on. not. They're not. Yeah. That's not, most people, of course, they're, they're only participating in it because they have to. Yeah. They're obliged to. They're not. They're not looking to take any alpha out of the market. They are just. Um, um, what they're giving up. Someone opportunistically is able to pick up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something on that I wanted to ask though. So, <clears throat> I mean, is the are your findings going to be a little bit skewed anyway by? The actual existence of the 4 p.m. fix. You know, for instance, if the fix, if there was a fix at midday, the pre-hedging flows would probably show up, wouldn't they? So it wouldn't. It's, it would. It's actually not really about the times. It's about. Is it fair to say that this is about any fixing window that attracts large flow that we can all focus yes, on compared to any other time of day? It is, and the yeah. the, the reason for this, of course, is that this is a fixed mechanism which um, um, has an impact, creates market impact. Um, yeah. So, the, you know, the, 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 um, so we were talking earlier, we talked about this, the, you know, sort of peer-to-peer. Yeah. Um, the, the challenge for uh, peer-to-peer is to um, choose a, bench, a fair benchmark that doesn't create market impact. Yeah. Um, the because the, the 
it's a, it's a strange mechanism where there's a, there's a market which is going on. You've got this, you know, the FX market never stops, and then suddenly in a bubble, you've got this other market, a kind of cool market going on separately. Yeah, um, and the market hasn't stopped, and so all the thing that's going in this in this little sort of cool market is leaking out and causing massive market impact. And 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 that's basically where the unit cost of volatility will come in. To highlight that. that's right and but um, but also it's a solvable problem yeah you know it's it's um the um it's it's you know it's where is um how is the tail managed yeah and i guess the run-up to it i mean yeah. you could argue you could argue that if the analytics show you that you know you need to pre-hedge for 10 minutes ahead of a five-minute window then the window should be 15 minutes that's right. I mean, there's um, um, Jamie Walton has he's been on the show. Um, yeah, uh, he was. Um, um, uh, he's he's come up with with this the siren methodology. This is, this is the idea of efficient execution. Yeah, um, that if you can measure your participation in such a way that you are uh, optimizing that uh, trade off between minimizing market impact and minimizing your transaction costs. If you do it over a sufficient long time, then you smooth out that whole process and you end up with optimal execution. Yeah. The execution space continues to evolve, which is always good fun um, for someone like myself. Um, Zev, thank you very much for that. It's interesting. And, and I look forward to more uni or UCV um, related research in the coming months and years. Um, obviously, this I take it this can be accessed off the new change website? the papers yep. Great. yes absolutely okay so um well thank you very much for joining us very interesting um to our listeners thank you again for listening and tuning in uh, we'll be back next week as usual so um, have a very good week thanks for listening